Yo, what's up, Theorites? Just a quick word before this episode starts. What we have here is a little ATT confidential, one of our many bonus episodes on Patreon. So if you like what you hear, head over to alientheorist.com, find the Patreon link, support your boys, support your favorite show. We have another 45 or 50 episodes like this, plus another 100 or more of other shows we've done with all the after hours, etc. I know you hear the spiel all the time. So we thought you'd give you a little teaser to see what you're missing out on. All right. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Peace. Anticipated episode of ATT Confidential. I'm Braden. I'm Dan. I'm 95% sure that those never line up. <laughs> it's our I think Zell has his work cut out for him whenever he edits us doing those. Uh, um, yes, the oft requested. Forget and we're not uh, talking about the first thing. No, what? Uh, ATT first confidential. Thing. Oh yeah, they they first are thing. much requested. It is the, in the poll, it is the number one requested or appreciated thing of our our Patreon. There'll be more coming now. Me and I think the what, the the only holdup really for me and Dan doing these more often is that we alternate taking turns of who chooses a topic, and then sometimes we'll do a good one, and then the other person's like, well, I don't know what to do next. And then it'll take a while to kind of get reorganized. But today, um, everyone knows what Operation Paperclip is. That well, was, some people uh, don't know what Operation Paperclip but is. But I'll give a summary. Because we, it, you know what? To be honest, it needs its own case file. It's crazy. Like Operation Paperclip on our main show eventually is going to have a case file. Um, but to sum it up briefly, after World War II, when the uh, Allies won... And, you know, they crushed the German forces and they arrested everyone, uh, you know, for all the war crimes they did against humanity. Uh, the United States, in with Operation Paperclip, took their brightest scientists and um, Nazi scientists and was like, hey, listen, you come uh, do your thing and bring all your research with us and we'll pardon you for all your crimes. We're just going to look the other way. No big deal. Yeah, I was more, so, that's more or less what it is. I mean... Uh, the UK had their own version as well. I think it was Operation Overcast. Uh, Overcast and Paperclip kind of lined up together. But ye, most people credit uh, Operation Paperclip as the building the foundation for what is now NASA. So you yeah. you smuggled out all your uh, German rocket the, scientists, like uh, you know rocketry specialists, engineers, uh, to come over here. Werner von Braun was one of the uh, was one of the big catches for the US. Yeah, you know, and their rocket systems wouldn't be what it is without Operation Paperclip. Right. It it definitely probably would have taken us a lot longer to do it. Um, the the 
the scientists and the engineering, the science and the engineering know-how that we gained uh, from the uh, Nazi scientists that were brought over is, uh, yeah, it gave us a big old head start. Um, or we would have just been working from scratch at that point. So now, you know, um, the Americans went in, they'd offer these German scientists sweetheart deals eventually, like come to the United States, uh, work for us, we will give you diplomatic immunity. Uh, basically, we'll look at look the other way to all the war crimes and heinous things you did in the name of science, but you need to come and work with us, with our scientists. Um, that's how they did it. They would offer these deals. They would be approached. They would approach these people. Uh, now, on to what we're discussing today. <laughs> on the other side of the suitcase, <laughs> Iron Curtain, you had the Soviets. So the Soviets also wanted a piece of the rocket pie. Um, they had, uh, even as soon as like 1945 and 1946, you had these uh, Soviet survey teams uh, called trophy brigades, which were made up of scientists, soldiers, industrial managers, and actually party representatives that went all across Europe and Asia, pretty much cataloging all of the material uh, that was going to be delivered back to the Soviet Union, which they deemed as part of their due reparations for the war. Since, I mean, the Soviet Union took tremendous losses during the war. Yeah, huge. Uh, more than any other uh, allied uh, power at the time. But <laughs> they're just walking around. This, this is now us. <laughs> this, is, this is now Russia. Uh, we'll take this. It, this is ours. This is ours. This is ours. Check it off. Check it off, comrade. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Write it on the list. Da, da, da. <laughs> so, uh, so they had their own version of uh, Operation Paperclip, and it was uh, referred to as Operation Osovayakim, uh, which was their. I think that's roughly translated to uh, come with me or I'll kill you. I think. <laughs> I think, I think, I don't know for sure. I could be wrong. And you wouldn't be completely wrong if that's actually what it, <laughs> what it referred to. Uh, most of the reports that we get from this program uh, or the experiences that scientists had uh, going into this program, we get from uh, Helmut Grotrube uh, and his wife. And uh, Helmut was a German engineer and rocket scientist. And he's actually, if you look him up, he's the inventor of what we have today, the smart card. Um, if you've ever worked in a, gov a government job um, uh, or any job where you needed like a... a yeah, clearance a data card. A clearance card, you know, data code on there. Uh, he was the inventor of that technology. Uh, during World War II, he worked in a in the German V2 rocket program, and he actually worked under Werner von Braun. Not directly together, but he they were they would uh, you know they would exchange notes and, and things like that. So Gotrub had actually been approached by the Americans uh, before. Uh, but Grotrube uh, actually communicated with the Soviets and kind of turned down uh, the Americans um, and offered his services to the Soviets if uh, they were to give him like complete freedom. Uh, that was that was his terms on, on on why he would come help them, and he offered up to the Soviets uh, help in two ways. He told the Soviets that uh, where to find the other skilled Germans uh, who might be useful to their uh, rocket 
program. And he also directed the Russians on where to find more of the equipment that was used to build V-2 rockets. <laughs> it's it's uh, interesting because he was basically like, yeah, uh, I, did, I can't do a German accent. That's what I was going to do. But uh, he's basically told the Russians, you know, let me come with me, you on my terms, and I will sell out all my friends down the river. I'll tell you where they are, how to get them. Uh, and and the Soviets obliged. I mean, they were they were happy to offer him, you know, anything. I mean, they would probably would have promised him the moon at this point, you know, because you know, promises, 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 promises. It, it didn't really matter at this point. They just wanted the technology. They just wanted the scientists. They were getting these scientists, uh, you know, whether they liked it or not. So by April 1946, uh, you had this uh, kind of the big, uh, big bad of the Soviet security forces, uh, Chief Lavrenti Beria, uh, who said, who made a report to Stalin on all of the valuable work in Germany that was being done in the 12 months before uh, the April 1946. So in that time, uh, Soviet personnel had collected and translated uh, a ton of German documentation on missiles. Uh, they created special rocket institute at Nordhausen, uh, which will come back into play later, which they made their pretty much their nerve center for their operations. And they also established five technological design bureaus that were focused on different areas of missile development. And then the last thing they really did was they actually reconstructed one of the, the factories at this place called Middlework. And that was enough for them to, to allow them to resume productions of V2 rockets. It's interesting. So they built a basically identical lab in Russia or in Germany? In Germany. So before, yeah. before they had moved all of their stuff uh, from Germany... Uh, they actually rebuilt a lot of stuff because uh, they, they kind of made the case or, you know, the, the Soviet intelligence officers and stuff that were on the ground were like, it'll be way easier for us to just recommission all of these V2 sites that are technically now ours since it was kind of like the Soviet occupation zone at this yeah. point. And <laughs> basically any any reason to stay out of Russia a little longer. <laughs> uh, but but they figured this would this would be more simple than actually building it all from scratch because um they did ship out a lot of material uh when they uh like they, they, when they arrived at Middlework, after a couple months, they had actually loaded up about five five thousand six hundred forty seven tons of equipment to ship back to the Soviet Union. So a couple days, so by April seventeenth, nineteen forty six, uh, you had the Soviet ministers uh, from the USSR, and they issued what is known as Decree Number eight seven four three six six SS, which ordered the Ministry of aviation industry, also known as MAP, to deport 1,400 engineers and workers in the USSR. So including family members, number of deported was about 3,500 people at this point. So these are people, what is now, when they say USSR, they still mean it's like all the German engineers that are in Germany, because now Germany, that part of Germany, Eastern Germany is now part of the USSR. Yeah, it's now German Russia. Yeah, it's not like you're moving from, you know, from like Moscow to St. Petersburg. You're moving from Germany to <laughs> Moscow. Yeah. Uh, May 13th. 
same year, uh, Stalin actually signed a top-level government decree which established a kind of uh, skeletal network of what would be development and research and production facilities all around Moscow, Russia's capital city, to support the work on these missiles. Uh, Stalin's decree actually gave the missile, like building these missiles and and research and and producing a viable uh, military, you know, uh, military piece of hardware. Uh, it was second only to the development of the Soviet atomic bomb project. So it was super important that they needed to get this done. Yeah. They wanted these scientists. So now you move on to like a lot of stuff happened in 1946. So they just like, they kick stuff into gear uh, right off the bat as soon as they could. So August 24th of that same year, you have Colonel Ger- Colonel General Ivan Serov, uh, who is actually a secret police officer who served under the deputy commander of the Soviet administration in Germany or SVAG, I guess, SVAG. Uh, he sent a letter to uh Gergi Malenkov, who is a uh, party official who is overseeing a lot of the rocketry, and he was actually asking for the government to make a decision on the deportation of these German specialists in the USSR. So there is actually a draft of the government decree, uh, which was reviewed by uh, an SVAG uh, commander, VD Sokolovsky, and the leaders of various industries were conveniently attached on that letter. So it, here's, here's one of the things we talk about. It's like, come with us or, or you're, or you're going to die, basically, is the, uh, to minimize the attempts to escape. The Soviet authorities pretty much scheduled all these deportations to take place simultaneously across the entire Soviet zone of Germany. And so giving them the shortest period of time between the 15th and the 20th of October in 1946. It's, it's, it's great. Cause I like to think of it as they're like, you know, they were, they were going door to door in Germany with pamphlets. Like, listen, uh, we know that the American can offer you uh, many good things, but uh, Russia, we have great. And they just slammed the door on them. They're like, Oh, no one wants to go. They're like, well, we'll get them. Put his name on the list. <laughs> it. Welcome to Moscow. It's like, we're not in Moscow. You'll be there in three days. Okay, You bye. will be. Come with me. <laughs> uh, September of that year, you have the Soviet ministers, the USSR, uh, issue another decree. Uh, this one was number 2163880S, uh, which was entitled on removal of hardware from German military enterprises. And this document is credited with officially launching the process of the transfer of German rocket production to the USSR. So for what the resources and things that they have in Germany, they were going to actually move all a lot of that uh, materiel and personnel uh, to the actual, you know, Soviet union proper and then begin their, their rocket production. Now, so, again, like we said, they were trying to give them the least amount of time. So none of the German scientists who had actually been, you know, marked for deportation were really told about it. It was a complete and absolute surprise that on October 11th, uh, you know, uh, like we... Uh, was the 11th? To- I thought it was the 22nd. Oh, 21st. Sorry, 21st. Uh, so you have the 21st and... 
uh, October 21st, Grote Group uh, was leading several Germans uh, who attended a meeting in Nordhausen for possible improvements on the V2. So they had actually planned after this meeting to have a party at a local restaurant. And so they had a big old party after this, uh, after they, you know, talked about science, they did all their rocket sciencing. And then they, they, you know, they party, I guess scientists party hard. So they were, they were all up until about 3am and then most had gone home and were completely smashed and they were inbred, uh, inbred, (laughs) in bed. Uh, when army trucks drove up to each of the selected Germans' places of living. So you have three in the morning, you just got into bed after this uh, this hardcore partying, and there's Soviet army trucks driving up to your front door. And the crazy thing is, is like, it's not one of these things where these, you know, the, the truck pulled up, knock, knock, knock. This was so planned that they had keys. They had keys to people's apartments. So they were just like, in the door, all of a sudden, all exits blocked, surrounded with machine guns. They're like, congratulations, comrade. Get up. It's time to mobilize to go work in Russia. You won all expenses paid vacation to Moscow. Yeah. Congratulations. Surprise. Gather your things and gather your family. Come with us, please. But like seriously organized. And they had keys. It, it was such a mobilized operation that, um, you know, wh- there's a German engineer, Frank Karl uh, Prickschat. I don't know if that's how you say his name, but he was one of the uh, German engineers <laughs> recruited uh, under this operation. And he basically said that, like, you, we were instantly surrounded in the middle of the night with machine guns pointed at us saying, get up, you're going. And... Uh, if you had to use a bathroom or anything, people went in first to make sure there was no chance of you escaping. Like they're like, oh, bathroom safe. You may go in and then come out. Cause then we go to Russia. Yeah. <laughs> you like try to close the stall door. He's like, nope, yet comrade. <laughs> and it's, it's not even that they just took the scientists either. They would take the scientist family. So like it was estimated that more than 2,200 German specialists were taken in this operation and a total of 6,000 people in that single night. Yeah, they loaded all these people up onto trains like that very night and just shipped them off to uh, a couple of places around Russia, mostly near Moscow. So these were five-star resorts though, I imagine, right? Like big time... Yeah, mo- like, most of the places that they sent them to were were not. I mean, they wanted the scientists to be comfortable. This wasn't a complete. It wasn't like a pogrom or anything. It wasn't like yeah. this. This wasn't uh, taking war prisoners or nothing like this. It was more like we're going to put you in a very nice place. Most it's of these called people, the Gulag. Yeah, most of these people they lived in kind of nice suburbs uh, where they relocated them to uh, close to their places of work because, of course, uh, you would put these people where you could keep an eye on them. I mean, they were completely definitely weren't trusted by the uh by the soviets and the soviets also worried about like their day-to-day interactions with people in in russia like if people found out that these people were germans or they had been ex-nazis there was they knew there would be a problem so they just wanted a place where it put them all in the same kinds of areas so they could keep an eye on them uh, they built this one place, uh, which was referred to, which is NII-88 Institute, which is one of the, the rocketry. Uh, this is kind of the big one. Uh, and they put this one 
in a decrepit factory in Kaliningrad. So the factories and the places that they actually put them uh, were in various states of disrepair. I know uh, from some accounts, it was like, it would be colder in these buildings. These buildings weren't insulated, nothing. It was like these buildings were colder in the winter, like indoors than it was outdoors. These places kind of really sucked. So they made a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of German scientists kind of complained about those things. But of course, like, you know, Who's going to listen at that point? Yeah, Scheiße. <laughs> uh, they they would also like not only the the they took the people, the families, but also their furniture and their belongings. And like some of them on this train were then offered a contract, being like, "Well, look at this! Congratulations! Not only you get vacation, but you now win a great job opportunity in Russia. Uh, we'll pay you uh, same as Soviet worker. Sign contract, please. Uh, do it now." And they were given these contracts and you know, many of them have said like there was little doubt that there was you had no choice. Like they didn't go as far to say anything, but the implications were there that it wasn't a realistic option for you to just say uh, nigh to the, the these contracts. Uh, for the first several months in the USSR, uh, the legal status of these German specialists was uncertain. Uh, the Soviet authorities were still trying to figure out how they were going to treat these captives. So the Germans didn't have any passports. They didn't have any you know, travel documents. They didn't have anything. And they were not uh, able to send letters home for the first two months that they were staying in the USSR. Oh, I'm sure there was letters sent home. I'm having a wonderful time in Russia. I love it very much. Uh, have happy, good times. See you soon. <laughs> and but yet a lot of the german scientists and specialists that were working there it, it wasn't the living conditions it wasn't the 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 lack of being able to to send correspondence their biggest frustration if for most of the scientists or what was reported was actually their chaos at work like they 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 were the Germans were very used to working in a very you know structured environment where you know notes were passed back and forth. It was easy to get information from different departments and things like this. So when this kind of German you know efficient work ethic and and you know uh, you know workplace uh, you know workplace organization kind of collided with what was now the uh, monstrous. Soviet bureaucracy, it was just, you had like chaos at work, yeah. uh, more or less. So they like, they didn't have storage facilities at some of these places. So a lot of the hardware that had been delivered from that, uh, the Nordhausen facility that was still in Germany ended up being unloaded uh, onto just snow covered ground along the railway line. So everything was, everything <laughs> just, was rusted just out. Just heave it off. Yeah. And <laughs> these are like, these are, sensitive materials like sen like <laughs> sensitive uh instruments and things like that testing equipment you know these things are for for rocket calibration and these yeah. kinds of uh these do you have uh is there any storage uh when we get there in russia will there be storage uh russia big storage everywhere free <laughs> Uh, so they had, uh, documents and blueprints, blueprints that were generated in Germany were lost in trans transit, or they were actually grabbed by competing ministries. Ministry. So you had the Soviet union was holding itself back and hindering its own 
progress because you had ministries, different ministries within the Soviet Union kind of competing against each other in this weird little kind of power grab and kind of just a, you know, competition where they were trying to, to get their certain faction to progress faster than the other. So it just really set everything way, way back. Yeah, they were just tripping over each other at every turn. It was kind of interesting how like, you know, that was a thing is like they were all trying to vie for attention, all these different ministries. So they would just literally sabotage each other at every turn and make things difficult so that they were the one. I'm, I imagine it had something to do with getting funding and I, right? But there was definitely some issues. So you really had at this point two uh, rocket development campuses or so or, or organizations kind of rise up out of this. You had the one that was established in Nordhausen already and then you had the other one that was established in Kaliningrad uh, and the organizational structure uh, in the two uh, couldn't have been more different. Uh, in Germany uh, in, Nordhaus in Nordhausen facility, you had the Germans and the Soviet scientists were actually integrated into a single organizational structure. So you had nobody kind of outranked the other. You had free communication between the two sides. And then in Kaliningrad, you had the two groups working in complete isolation from each other. So they they, ne they never talked to each other, never really got the the interaction, uh, any of the kind of cooperative progress that you know most of science is actually based on. Do you, <laughs> you think get shit done? It's funny because when I looked at that, I was thinking, I went in my head, I was like, I wonder if it's because they were doing something top secret at this other one, and they didn't want any German scientists to know exist. Like they wanted to compartment compartmentalize it as much as possible. Because when I was looking at that, I went, well, why would they do it here where they integrate them? Which makes sense because then it's, you know, further easier collaboration, right? Especially if you're looking for scientific breakthroughs and, you know, cutting edge science. And then this other one, you have this ass backwards way of like, we were going to keep you separate and not really make it easy for you guys to talk. So I, I think it was more it was more of a matter of just the who was supervising each operation because you had the in Nordhausen in Germany you had you know you were far away from Moscow you know so you were far away from all of that kind of I, I would say bureau, bureaucratic bullshit that they were going through over there and you could kind of run your facility the way you wanted to run it right you didn't have you know the 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 prospect of uh, Joseph Stalin walking in and like looking over your shoulder and be like, why are you treating these Germans so nice? You know, it's, yeah. you don't have that. It's, uh, it, it was just yeah. like, <laughs> German fifth Russia, you know, and it's, you don't have that. It was just kind of over there. It was, is more about the actual progress than it was about, you know, making sure that the Russians looked good or that the Russian scientists look good. So, you know, in the end, uh, that, that facility at Kaliningrad really got, little done they were in terms of progress or com when compared to the other facility at Nordhausen so now the main task for the Germans in the NII 88 uh, was the development for uh, of proposals for the improvements on the A4 design now the A4 was your uh, your V2 uh, it was just the alternate version for the name of the V2 rocket so when they finished with these improvements, you know, German scientists did what they could and and to make it better, this came out known as the G1 or German rocket oh, number yeah. one. 
So they had their very first V2 launch in October 18th, 1947. So like a year later, uh, they had their very first rocket liftoff and it flew 207 kilometers and then it landed 30 kilometers from its target. So yeah, that sucked. So they give it a second try, right? <laughs> uh, two days later, they, yeah. they, they set up a second one. This one did even more shitty. This I, one, can, I can only imagine it in some sort of like weird Wes Anderson thing where he's like, you know, you have the general, you have all the scientists. Like th- there's like six scientists lined up in their white lab coats. You have the one military general like walk out, hit the button. It just fucking... And he just like looks at them and just turns and storms off. <laughs> Muttering in Russian, just like yeah. walking up. Uh, the second launch two days later, uh, you know, they gave him a chance to like, you know, you need to get, you need to get your shit in gear, you know? Yeah. And so they try a second rocket. Second rocket hits the ground 181 kilometers from its target. So like not even in the same mm. <laughs> fucking neighborhood. So it was some rocket anxiety. <laughs> yeah, it was not a it, it was not a pretty sight. So there, you know, again, you've got all of these uh, ministers and these supervisors, Russian supervisor, pretty much they're, they're fucking losing it. They're, I, I, I'm sure at this point they're ready to execute the German scientists. Just be like, you fucking idiots! Like, we, yeah, <laughs> you make us look like fools. Yeah, the Americans they get all the good scientists. We get shit. He's so, they had one French Russian. That's where that accent came from. <laughs> Three days later, they give him a third try, and this rocket performed also poorly. And so at this point, they issued a bunch of uh, veiled threats and they were hinting at sabotage by the designers. So it was like really getting real close to kind of shipping off these scientists off to the gulag, you know, getting all expenses paid to uh to Siberia at this yeah. point. Um, so they're in, they're pretty deep shit at this point. You had like a, um, kind of competition going on between the two. Like I said, they had the competition kind of going between the Nordhausen and the, uh, the Kaliningrad Moscow units of the rocketry programs. Uh, the, the Russian commander who, who headed up the, uh, the Nordhausen one, uh, he was also a very competitive person and he felt he was actually getting slighted uh, by the, the the scientists like that were uh, or the scientists of like the ministries over in Soviet Russia because they were making such good progress over there. And yet the scientists and the engineers and stuff at, at Moscow were kind of getting like more resources or more attention than they were of his because they actually had progressed at such a point where it's like the Soviets... Uh, got to a point very quickly where it was like, we don't even need the Germans anymore. Like once we've translated all this stuff, like we can do the work, we can do all that stuff. We have a better understanding of what we're doing and there's no reason for us to really keep the Germans. Like we can just kind of send them off. You know, they did their part, made their contributions and that was it. Like it was like within a year, you know, the the Germans were almost superfluous. Like they didn't really need them for anything. Um, I know Grotrup would make, uh, you know, uh, reports later, kind of like in his notes and things like this, where he was like, the German, the the Russians would come in, they would look at their notes, they'd ask some questions, and then they would like leave, and that was it. They wouldn't like talk about it or anything like that. And then, uh, like the the Germans became more and more isolated uh, within their own rocket programs because they were eventually just 
kept out of everything. Like, cause it was once the Russians had what they wanted, uh, they're like, Oh, okay. We understand the concepts. Like we got this. And then they just like the, they was like, we don't need the Germans anymore. They didn't include them in any of their kind of research meetings or anything like that. So the German knowledge just kind of stagnated. They couldn't do any research. They couldn't do anything. So they were just kind of, yeah. <laughs> Should aside. So by the end of 1950, you really had, uh, they, the, the Russians felt like they had everything that they had needed from them. And most of the Germans who had actually worked in the facilities uh, over and around Moscow were sent back to Germany. Congratulations, comrade. Your uh, work contract vacation is over. <laughs> it's a... It's a weird story. Like it's it's definitely something that it's because it, it it doesn't really sound like they were free to leave. I mean, they were like you, they, they they couldn't go anywhere. They took their families with them, who they could take, and then the 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 German, but the German engineers and scientists who were working on these things, it was kind of like the only thing they had to do. So, yeah. uh, more or less, I mean, they were happy to do it. And like their living conditions where they were, like they put them up in like mansions and vacation houses uh, near where they were going to be placed, like where the factories were going to be built uh, or where the old factories were. They weren't living in squalor or anything like that because you really just wanted to keep your scientists happy at that point and, and get all the information they could. But uh, these are the scientists and things that, you know, they put, they put Russia's Sputnik into space. Like this is... This is where all of that kind of work came from. Uh, and also, like, because, you know, where the alien theorists theorizing, this operation has a little bit of a UFO connection. Mind you, uh, the threads to this get a little looser. Uh, but Annie Jacobson uh, wrote a book called Area 51. It's like the hidden knowledge or something other. Uh, and in it, she talks about this operation of the Russians smash and grabbing. And she said, you know, it's we've theorized about it, but about Hitler potentially having a flying saucer. And she says that, um, you know, potentially they did. And if they did, it was designed by the Horton brothers. These were German, uh, like Nazi aerospace engineers who made some of the, you know, the most technically advanced uh, airplanes of the 40s. Uh, I think they had the first uh, jet-powered flying wing. They had designs for like a half-moon-shaped um, like jet-propelled um, flight. I think it was called the the world's first jet-powered flying wing was the Horton Ho uh, 229. And in this book, Annie Jacobson says that the Americans were very interested during all of this and finding these brothers. And it is theorized by her that these brothers ended up in Russia. They were some of the scientists grabbed. Um, and she says that they, the Russians potentially had, um, while we were, everyone was focused on V2 rockets and, you know, all of this kind of stuff, the Russians were busy at making flying saucers using the Horton's revolutionary designs. Uh, and she goes on to say that th this design was so good that she thinks that, you know, maybe up until even today, that Russia has the most technological advanced um, 
like planes uh, in the world. And an interesting one for her with this is, and how it comes to the UFO connection, is that she theorizes that the Roswell crash in in the United States was actually one of these Soviet spy planes, which was a flying saucer. And the bodies that were found inside were Soviet like pilots. And this kicked off the United States um, in trying to like, you know, come up with better planes to try to match uh, the superiority of these spy planes that the Soviets now had. Kind of thought so, that was an yeah, interesting. They, uh, her her theory kind of hinges on the thing that the, the the bodies that they that they retrieved from the you know bodies that put those in, in question in quotation marks. Uh, <laughs> the bodies that they retrieved from the crash were supposed to be deformed, uh, like deformed experiments or something like she she kind of I, I believe she she implies that or implies or or directly states I haven't I haven't read the whole book but um that you know Joseph Mengele had a uh hand in like creating these like deformed uh stunted growth pilots and they were like okay so they load them up onto their UFO and and launch them over the United States uh which is you know I <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't sure it's an I mean, interesting theory it's an interesting theory for sure and I, you know I have my doubts about it because I don't think there's anything that had the I, I'm not sure what the like the flight range capabilities of anything during that time of what they were building like you'd have to like some some type of craft. So, you know, they say that they recovered, you know, there are reports, but two to three bodies recovered from the Roswell crash. So if you have a three-person aircraft of some type, you know, uh, jet propulsion, and so somehow you would have to get this craft within distance of Roswell, New Mexico, so cruising distance. So, like, the only way you would be able to do that is you'd either have to launch it from an aircraft carrier like off the coast of California or maybe Mexico, uh, or you could say, oh, maybe they launched it off a submarine. But I, I really doubt that you would have a submarine that could launch a jet aircraft off of it because we don't even have one of those now. I mean, you might be able to shoot a drone off of there, yeah. But uh, you know, a three-person craft, even small, you know, child size pilots would be that's See, a stretch and, and from my from like my when i was reading this theory i was like oh it's kind of interesting uh she said that these were basically just man drones like their only use was for reconnaissance but then for me like same kind of thing i'm like one for me i'm like well it doesn't make sense you know there's some glaring issues for me and one is that you know the military initially made that report of like of going and needing child size coffins, uh, you know, making a report to the newspaper, being like, "We've recovered a craft, uh, this and this of unknown origins," uh, you know, basically saying it's aliens, and then coming back and being like, oh, "None of that. We it was nothing." So, like to me, like that stuff doesn't add up. And then if you look at the, like the Russia or the American spy plane program, like the what is it? The is it the U two? What was the yeah. one? The, yeah, that's uh, the, high the altitude U2, one. The high altitude one. If you like get into that, I mean, that at the time was unparalleled. 
it was so good that like I'm like reading their like first test flights. They were so high that they were actually like the Russians were like, there's something up there. They they couldn't figure it out how, so they couldn't send any jets. They were trying to intercept it, but they have they had no capabilities to get this thing out of the sky. And this is a time where if they had the capabilities to blow that thing out of the fucking sky, if they knew it was there, they would have. And yeah, I, even even to not even blow it up, but even if they had some sort of aircraft that could challenge it, because yeah. that's usually because even today they still do that shit. It's still like a fucking dick measuring contest out on the fucking Pacific Ocean where you've got you know Soviet MiGs buzzing F twenty twos and you know F A eighteens and stuff. They just kind of fly close to each other. It's it's a Top Gun thing, you know, go inverted, yeah. flip them the bird. It's really if if you had some sort of craft that could do that, they would have done it. Yeah. Yeah, like 100%. And so they're saying like, you know, Annie Jacob theorized that like they would have this craft that like, they, like you said, Dan, it's either like, so it would be some like light years ahead of what we had at the time, you know, fuel efficient or they're launching it from some craft. But then if it's, if it's that capable of like outmaneuvering us in the States, they would have had something to challenge it. Like, why wouldn't they? Right. It, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. But I thought it was an um, interesting theory. But yeah, those, those technological advancements in rocketry and air, you know, aircraft have, have gone a long way. Uh, we were talking about if you're mentioning Russian drones, you can talk about just just the other day. I saw they rolled out the S seventy. Uh, oh, it's like Ohotnik, Ohotnik B, which is the uh, flying wing Russian uh, unmanned drone. It looks like a little mini stealth bomber, uh, and it's unmanned drone, and they're gonna start producing them. I think in the next few years like mass producing them or like distribute them to their to their aircrafts and to their military but it is a um you know it, when you look at it you're like it's a very flying wing type of thing um you know it, it the stuff that that comes out and the stuff that we see i think yes a lot of people would would probably agree that it is a very small fraction of the technology that is available you know to intelligence and military services uh we only get to see the real tip of the iceberg um we talked about it on the other podcast in the news just the other day they had the cia drone uh that was designed to be powered by a, a mini nuclear reactors you know more yeah. or less and it, it looks like something crazy. Like it looks like a little bird kind of wing, but it's also swept wing kind of craft. It's, <laughs> you know, it, anything could be flying up there, especially if you have, you know, we have the capability of what the U2 is capable of in like the 1950s and 60s. And, you know, now or kind of just like where, where could technology possibly be at this point is, you know, kind of anybody's guess. Yeah, like who knows what kind of secret spy planes or, you know, secret crafts that are fucking buzzing around right now. Like I could only imagine. But that's basically the gist on Operation Osofiakim. Osofiakim. I had a, I had a, it, it, I had a hard time trying to find out how to pronounce that one. I found like one video on YouTube of somebody actually pronouncing the name, but it's a. Uh, yeah, that kind of you know, that wraps up the whole thing. I know we'll probably go more in depth 
about uh, Operation Paperclip at some point because the the rush the also Viakim most of the reports that we have come from Helmut Grothrub and like his wife and maybe some U.S. intelligence reports and and it pens out like an interesting narrative but we definitely probably have more complete records and and things about the the U.S. version Operation Paperclip so that'll definitely come up at some point <laughs> probably in the main case files yeah hundred um, percent well any any final points there Dan. Mm. Nope. All right. Well, as we always say at the end of these things, thanks everyone for being Patreon. We got tons more stuff coming your way and keep those eyes on the skies. Peace.